Hey folks, you're listening to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I'm your host, Andy Sitto. I'm a Denver-based performer, songwriter, producer, and whatever else I have to do to make, uh, make a living in this industry. And my guest today is entertainment and copyright lawyer, Max Haas. You know, there's not a ton of entertainment lawyers in, in Colorado. And if you've been in the scene for a while, um, you probably know Dave Ratner. He's great. He does a lot of stuff for a lot of artists in town. Um, but uh, uh, Max was brought to my attention by my manager, Ellie, uh, several weeks ago because um, she was working with him in some capacity with another group and said, hey, you should get him on the podcast. And I said, hey, I will. So we had a conversation um, and the first thing I noticed about Max, I said it at the beginning of our interview, is he, if you go stock his social medias, he looks like a bass player who does law rather than a lawyer who owns a bass. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, so despite being an entertainment lawyer and copyright lawyer, he is still very active in the Denver music scene. Um, he plays with he plays with bands around town. Um, he also is is doing some work for Loose Leaf Talent Agency, and he's really done pretty much everything you can do in the music business. Um, when he when he eventually decided that he was going to do entertainment law, he went to Tulane in New Orleans so that he could be in that music scene and uh, get an education in law at Tulane. And then when he finished up, he kind of did anything but be a lawyer for the next couple of years. He was. Uh, doing management and promotion and, and all sorts of other things um, before he moved to Denver. And he is now uh, with Parlatore, uh, Parlatore, excuse me, Parlatore <laughs> Law Group. We talk about the pronunciation of this a couple times. Um, and that's spelled P-A-R-L-A-T-O-R-E. And, uh, and, and they're based here in town as well. So, uh, in our conversation, Max kind of gives us some background on how he got into music, some of the different things he's done in the business, and uh, then towards the end, I ask him some questions about copywriting, some business questions, some law questions um, that he breaks down very well for us, the listener, who most likely is not a lawyer. <laughs> I know I'm not, but he does a great job of explaining things and explaining himself and clearing things up. Um, so anyway, let's jump into the conversation. And um, I'll also have, there's also contact info in the show notes if you want to know about Loose Leaf Talent Agency or uh, Parlatore Law Group or any of his other ventures if you want to reach out. I mean, those is, any of his other ventures, meaning his bands and um, where he's gigging, that kind of thing. You can reach out, shoot him an email. Um, anyway, all that's in the show notes. Before we jump in, quick thanks to our sponsors. First, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. And for any of your audio or restoration needs, visit pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. If you'd like to help this podcast out in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. You can contribute for as little as $3 a month, and uh, it helps me keep this thing going. Um, 
And if you'd like to help out in a non-monetary way, that's totally fine. Give this podcast five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It uh, it just takes a second, really helps out a lot, helps get new listeners. And uh, yeah, let's do the show. My conversation with Max Haas. Stalking your Facebook page, uh, <laughs> you, you seem like a bass player or musician who practices law rather than uh, a lawyer who owns some instruments, which is just to say that you're, you're very involved in the performance community. And I think that's really cool. That is, uh, that is how I describe myself pretty often these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's really, that's really kind of why I got into doing what I do. Um, I've been a bass player a lot longer than I've been a lawyer for one. And also a bass player a lot longer than I ever thought I would be a lawyer too. I, I didn't um, make the decision to even consider law school until after I had graduated college. And at that point I had been playing music for 10 years already. So, I mean, um, yeah, I, I've, yeah. I played bass since I was 11 years old. I have two younger brothers who are also musicians. So growing up, we played together all the time. I played in various different bands when I was in high school. Um, and when the time came to figure out, you know, a, a, an actual career, um, I wanted to stay involved in music as much as I could put my brain and my skills to use in ways that could be helpful for other musicians as well. And that's what really motivated me to even look at law school in the first place. So when you decide, well, and I guess to, to just give a, a little bit of background info, um, I mean, how did you first really get into music and like, what were, what were some of your influences? What were you listening to growing up? Mm, that's a great question. Um, my, uh, my dad was probably one of my biggest influences, uh, not necessarily as a musician himself, but because of what he showed me. Um, he likes to tell the story uh, that when I was a baby, like two or three years old, he would put on uh, Little Feet's Waiting for Columbus live record. And I would stand, you know, a foot away from the stereo dancing to uh, Fat Man in the Bathtub or Spanish Moon or one of those other songs that has like a pretty yes. prominent bass line in it. And, um, you know, I was three years old or younger at the time. And so I think that's kind of what started to get my brain oriented toward music and then I was always digging through his CDs and anytime we would ride in his car together, um, he only had, he had this old uh, GMC pickup truck that only had a cassette player. And this was, you know, this was the early nineties at the time. Uh, so he would make cassette tapes from the CDs and vinyl records that we had at the house. So in the car, it was Dave Brubeck, John Coltrane, um, Almond Brothers, Marshall Tucker Band, just this mix of like jazz, Southern rock. And uh, every once in a while, or I guess when I got a little bit older, he started getting really into uh, Martin Sexton and kind of my whole family really got yeah. into Martin Sexton. Um, 
But, you know, there were other things too. There were live shows that my parents brought me to. So like I saw Stomp when I was probably like eight years old and thought it was just one of the most amazing things I had ever experienced, you know, just like layers and layers of percussion. Um, My dad's jazz interests somehow led him to Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones. And then I discovered Victor Wooten from that. And that changed a lot for me. Um, You know, I saw them live when I was probably nine or 10 or 11, somewhere around there. Um, uh, And that age, I was also starting to kind of explore and discover my own musical tastes. And uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers Californication was one of the first albums that actually like owned my own copy of. Uh, I also picked up a copy of Chili Peppers uh, live DVD that they put out around the same time called Off the Map. And just seeing Flea perform live and just how much like energy he channeled through the bass was really inspiring. Um, So that was kind of what I was listening to. But my parents are also kind of musicians in their own way. My dad played drums all through high school and college and he kind of gave it up for a while after that. Um, but then when my brothers and I were little kids, he bought like a little digital drum kit, you know, not like a full kit, but one of these things is sort of this self-contained console kind of thing. And so we all were just banging away at the drums. Eventually my brother Lucas became a drummer from that, but I played drums too, just from having done it since I was pretty young. Um, and my mom sang when she was younger, she doesn't really sing too much these days, but she was in like a high school production of the sound of music and always has had a really good voice. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that my parents listened to a lot of music, they didn't necessarily consider themselves to be musicians as adults when, you know, me and my brothers came along. Um, but it was still pretty important to them to like turn us on to music. So when I was eight years old, my mom got me piano lessons. I didn't really love it. So it didn't last too long. Right. Uh, the following year I tried alto saxophone, really hated practicing. So that didn't last too long. Uh, that's one of my bigger musical regrets though. I wish that I played sax today. Stuck with it. Yeah. Um, but then uh, fast forward a, about two years and I was uh, at school one day, kind of near the end of the school year. So there's not a whole lot going on. And a friend of mine says, I'm going to join the jazz band next next year. Because in my, at my school, there was a, a middle school jazz band that only started at seventh grade. And we were at the end of our sixth grade year. And we were like, we're about to be a lot cooler now that we're going to seventh grade and we're eligible for all these yeah. other things. Um, and so, you know, he goes, I'm going to play guitar. And I said, that sounds really cool. I could be interested in doing that too. I don't play guitar, but you know, it sounds cool. It sounds like something I'd be interested in doing. He goes, no, no, no. I'm going to play guitar. We can't have two guitars and no bass. So we need someone to play bass. So why don't you play bass? Yeah. And I've heard from other people that this is how bass players are born is out of necessity. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so this is, you know, what happened to me, but I've talked to people before where it's been a similar kind of story where it's like, someone's like, well, we need to need someone to play bass, but 
you know, it didn't, it didn't take much, you know, I, I was certain that I wanted to do that. I knew that piano and saxophone hadn't really worked out for me, but I got my mom's car that afternoon and I said, I'm really interested in joining the jazz band next, next year. And I want to play bass and I want to learn how to play bass. I'm going to give this a try. And at that point, you know, two failed instrument attempts in my mom's like, okay, but if you do this, you got to like really do it this time. Yeah. Um, and uh, she bought me my first bass, which was uh, much later stolen out of a house that I lived in in New Orleans, uh, unfortunately. But I mm. uh, had that bass for over 10 years and played, you know, learned how to play on it, played a lot of gigs with it, took it, you know, to college with me, all of that. And uh, yeah, the first couple lessons, my bass teacher was teaching me a mix of Nirvana songs, uh, Beatles songs, and James Jamerson Motown bass lines. <laughs> so it was a little bit of an eclectic mix, but it really opened my eyes to a lot of different things all at once. And um, I, was, yeah. I was hooked almost immediately. Like yeah. I, I knew a little bit about how to play guitar. I had had a guitar, but bass was just different. And it really connected for me a lot differently and than any other instrument had. Does that help you today that you, I mean, I, so many people play in bands and then get into the music, into the music business. Of course, performing is, is part of the business, but they'll say, you know what? Okay, I'm done. And I'm going to put the bass up and I'm going to go be a booking agent or whatever. Does that, uh, I mean, do those two worlds really collide for you being able to still play and you still actively play in bands around town while you're, um, you know, doing, doing business things, being an attorney? Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I didn't really know much about the business when I was younger. Yeah. Um, didn't necessarily think that I would get involved in the business or that I would, you know, have a career in music. Um, you know, this is all at the time. Right. But I look back on it and I'm like, man, I was studying liner notes. I was figuring out how to record, write and record songs with, with my brother when we were teenagers so like I look back on all this stuff, I'm like, man, I was doing nothing but getting ready for, you know, a career in the music business. Yeah. Um, I was, I met up, uh, made some good friends in high school through my school's, you know, jazz band, which is a more formal part of like the curriculum and everything. And we got together and formed our own rock band and we jammed together and wrote songs and uh, recorded an album over the course of like three years, basically from freshman year of high school, almost until the point that I graduated. Um, and as part of that band, I somehow organized these like little mini festivals, some of the other mm. local bands in the Albany, New York area. And we put on this thing we called Back Porch Fest. And we just used like our guitarists, parents back porch and made a little mini festival. So I'm like, as I look back on all this, I'm like, wow, I really, there's, there's a lot, there were a lot more signs that I probably should have noticed at the time. But uh, uh, when I made the decision to really dive in on the business side of things, I knew 
that I would be able to relate to yeah. the people that I work with because I've been on stage dozens, if not hundreds of times at this point, I've been in the recording studio, I've written songs, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but that being said, none of those experiences actually taught me how copyright law works, how, you know, booking a show with a real venue works. Um, didn't yeah. know anything about, you know, the contracts involved and all of that kind of stuff. Didn't know anything really about BMI and ASCAP and that sort of thing. Um, and so it really was that point a little bit later on after I had graduated college where I was like, you know, if I'm really honest with myself, music has been my passion this whole time. I really need to just, you know, explore a career in that rather than try to just go get some random job that I'm not going to care about, you know? Yeah. Um, And so that's, that's where I made the decision to look at law schools that either had some kind of entertainment law program or were based in a um, city that had a good music scene, ideally both. Uh, And there are definitely a handful of schools that do have both. Um, Yeah. But it was really the experience of law school and the first two years or so after law school where I had a, you know, deep learning of all the business side of things that I build on today. Um, But yeah, music, you know, really touches on literally everything that I do professionally these days. And uh, I think that if my 11 year old self could see me today doing that and be like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Well, and you did find that, uh, a place that, uh, that had, you know, the right school that you were looking for and in a, a great music town, you found new Orleans, um, and, and went down to Tulane. So after, after law school, what was your first couple years like, uh, doing work? I mean, what were some of your first, uh, assignments? Yeah. Um, it was all, uh, it was, it was a lot of hustling. Um, so I, uh, the summer between my second and third year of law school, I spent in New York city and I was at this fancy midtown law firm doing corporate law because that was what, you know, you were like supposed to do if you're a good student and you, you know, if you're in like the top 15, 20% of your class, just based on grades alone in law school, uh, it kind of like creates this pathway where if you want to go the corporate law route and make, you know, these huge salaries, but also work, you know, 80 hours a week, um, that's like a path that lots and lots of people follow. Right. And so I was doing that thinking like, oh, I should get myself you know, set up to where I'm making good money, whatever, but I also wasn't doing anything that was really related to what I was interested in. And it just so happened that being in New York that summer was a good thing for other reasons, which was that I linked up with a musician from New Orleans uh, who was looking for a manager. And so he and I stayed in touch all through my last year of law school. And pretty much as soon as I was done with the bar exam, I mean, like, a month or less after the bar exam, 
uh, he hits me up and he says, Hey, so uh, what are you doing now? I'm like, well, I don't actually have any specific job lined up, but I do want to get involved in the industry. And he was like, well, why don't you be my manager and I'll teach you things I know and we can get this band off the ground. And so my first, um, my first year basically after law school was pretty much focused on being the manager for this tenor sax player who had sort of been pursuing a career in the jazz world, but also wanted to get this new funk band off the ground. And so, you know, the band had really nothing to go on except, uh, you know, personnel, uh, but they didn't have any recorded music. They hadn't played any live shows as that particular band yet. And so I spent that whole first couple months you know, creating a website, building up their social media presence, booking gigs for them. Uh, and through all of that, learning what all of that takes, you know, because I hadn't really done that before. I hadn't gone to a real venue beside, you know, my friend's parents' house where I was putting on things in high school um, and actually, yeah. you know, negotiated a deal for a band to play for a fixed amount, you know, guaranteed amount of money or a percentage of door sales. So all of that stuff was just learning on the job. Um, I will say for the sake of transparency that, you know, working on a fairly small commission for a brand new band doesn't exactly pay the bills. Right. And so I was doing all kinds of like other odd jobs on the side um, just to, just to keep things going. Um, so yeah. I wasn't technically practicing law for, for my first couple of years after, after law school. Um, but I was learning about how the music business works from the inside, you know, being a manager definitely gives you access to really every facet of what the music business entails, because you're dealing with everything, you know, you're creating right. opportunities for your artists, not just with live shows, but with, you know, radio appearances and press relations and generally getting the word out about the band and just trying to get more people aware of it. Um, right. So I learned a lot very quickly from that. And um, one of the things that I started to realize after six or eight months or so is Hey, I'm starting to develop these skills that I can put to use with other artists as well. And so I actually picked up um, a second management client about a year in to uh, to my foray in the in the management world. Yeah. Um, and I also started putting my contacts at music venues to use and picked up a couple of bands as a booking agent. So I kind of expanded from just manager to now manager and booking agent. And then the first band that I started managing wanted to take a little more control over the shows that we were doing. And so rather than going to venues where we had to sort of ask for an available date, try to negotiate a fee, all of this stuff, um, we started finding venues where we could sort of put the show together ourselves. Um, and uh, it was only a matter of time before I basically took that and ran with it as well. So then I started adding on concert promoter to my list of, of job titles. Uh, and there was this one particular venue in new Orleans 
where basically all through um, 2016 and a portion of 2017, I was just putting on shows separate from my management work, separate from my booking work. I had this venue that was willing to, you know, get a decent deal in place. And I just reached out to lots of local musicians around the New Orleans scene. And I put together singer songwriter nights. I put together jazz nights, um, put together rock shows, uh, worked with um, the now very well-known band Tank and the Bangas and put on a, uh, a show on Lundi Gras night, which yeah. was actually incidentally the night before they found out that they got selected uh, for the Tiny Desk contest. So uh, I stayed up till probably five or 6 a.m. that day being being Mardi Gras season and uh, got the email. I was like, oh, well, that was a great show tonight, but I guess I'm probably never going to work with them like that again. <laughs> yeah, because that just they blew up. Right. They went on right. tour that summer and um, things have been going amazingly well for them since. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I actually do still work with them in a variety of different ways now as an attorney. Um, but, you know, back then I was like just figuring out how to be a promoter. I'm like, if I can get them for a guarantee that I know I can agree to and sell tickets for this, we can put on a great show. And, yeah. uh, and we did I actually book them twice at that venue and we sold out both times. It was 200 people standing room and it was amazing. But Wow. Uh, but yeah, anyway, to summarize it all, the first two years after law school were management, booking, concert promoting, learning all the little nuances of how to promote shows on social media, get posters made, learning sort of the timeline of things, like when you need to announce shows, when you need to start promoting them in order for them to be successful. And what, um, what did your, what yeah. did your folks think when you, when you finished law school and then the next two years you spent doing anything but law, doing all the other things in the music industry? Uh, you know, all through law school, they, uh, pretty regularly pushed me toward, you know, more of that New York corporate law type thing, uh, partly because they knew that you know, it paid well and that it would be something that, you know, if I had done that for, let's say two or three years and then gone back to music stuff, theoretically, I would have had like some savings, whatever. But uh, once I was just doing it and decided this is what I'm doing, I think eventually they kind of just accepted like, okay, this is, this is what Max is doing now. Yeah. Uh, I, don't know that they were particularly thrilled, but, um, yeah, I think they trusted that I was going to figure it out. So, uh, well, it's, it's really cool too. Evolution. Yeah. Yeah. And, and listening to your, listening to your story, it's, it's really cool to me that you didn't take the corporate job or go with a firm right away. You said, you know what? I still have a lot to learn about the music business to be able to help, you know, artists in the best way as possible. And, you kind of went and did so many other things, you know, that's, that's really, really cool. Um, Thanks. and wh so where did the first, uh, the first opportunity 
in terms of being an attorney come in? I mean, were you you were independent for a little bit before joining uh, your current firm, right? You're a partner at uh, I'm going to say this wrong, Parlatore. You said it correctly. Oh, I did. Okay, we practiced okay, beforehand, we pra- right? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, you know, to be completely candid, my intention when I first went into law school, I knew that I wanted to work in the music business and I wanted to work kind of the entertainment business more broadly. I did not think that I would be a manager. <laughs> um, I took on all those different roles in my first couple of years after law school, because I wanted to get involved in the music scene. I wanted to learn um, how all this stuff worked, but I always kind of had in the back of my mind that I, that I would be practicing law at some point. I just didn't know exactly when or in what form that would take. Uh, I did know that I wanted it to be, you know, entertainment law with musicians and artists. Um, but figuring out a path as an entertainment lawyer is kind of tricky to do. Um, You know, there are not very many firms in general that do entertainment law at all, much less focus on it as their main practice area. Um, And the firms that do exist doing that kind of stuff are very disproportionately concentrated in New York City, Los Angeles, Asheville. Yeah. And so if you're not in one of those cities, you have to find the handful of people who do do entertainment law in that city and take your shot at trying to get a job with them. And in a lot of cases, they are very small law firms or they're solo practitioners. uh, And they often can't just take on, you know, an associate fresh out of law school. Right. Um, now my dad is an entrepreneur. He started his own business a couple of years before I was born. Um, had only a handful of jobs working for other people, uh, before he did that. And so I think there was something in me that was kind of like, this is the, this is the way to do it. Um, you know, I had been getting all kinds of suggestions and advice from other people along the way, but in my head, I was like, certain pieces of this don't seem quite right. I didn't want to move back to New York. I didn't necessarily want to go out to LA um, and work like in-house at a big film studio. I wanted to be working with artists. I wanted to be on sort of the artist side of the table, the advocate for artists. Um, And the only way to really do that is in some kind of private law practice, whether it's at a firm or on your own. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and so <clears throat> knowing all of that and, and knowing that I would likely have to figure out my own thing at some point, um, I sort of hit a point in, uh, summer of 2017 where I was like, you know, certain parts of this management thing, might not be for me, at least, at least for where I was at at that point in my life, you know, like there was just a lot of like, um, a lot of non-business stuff that I had to deal with that I didn't think I was really in a position to, to be able to handle on a regular basis. Um, and I kind of realized like, I don't, I don't want to do a disservice to the artists that I'm working with and be, you know, a crappy manager here. I think it's probably better for me to 
to recognize this is a good time to kind of step away from this, use this as a pivot point to focus on my legal work mm-hmm. um, and still find ways to be of service to artists, but in kind of a, a different way. There were other, other factors that went into that too. One is as a manager, you're really tied to only a handful of artists. You know, on any given day, you can only work with, you know, one or two of your artists and your work week is massively consumed by that particular artist's things that they have going on. And obviously every artist is different and some artists are really good about handling a piece of the business stuff themselves. Um, But in my experience, I just, I had very little time to reach kind of a broad base of people, but I realized that as an attorney, I didn't have to be so pigeonholed to just one or two particular clients. Um, And I wanted to have a broader impact, right? I wanted to be able to empower people with knowledge and understanding of how copyrights work and how to use contracts to protect their business and all these different things. Um, But I couldn't do that if I was working 40 plus hours a week on one particular artist's you know, album and tour and things like that. Right. right. So, so that was a big factor for me as well. Um, and then of course, you know, the financial piece of it couldn't be ignored either. And I was just working so, so hard for not even close to enough money to like be able to pay the bills. So yeah. um, the shift to legal practice was, it, it kind of came at a point where I was like, you know what, at this point I've learned maybe not everything, but a lot of what I feel like I need to know. I've built up a network of a lot of musicians and visual artists and filmmakers who know who I am. Now's the time to really get back to putting that law degree to use and making this happen. So I started my own firm um, because that's what I knew I wanted to do. You know, I didn't, have anyone I could go and just work for as an employee in New Orleans. I knew I wanted to stay in New Orleans at the time and being continue being an advocate for New Orleans musicians and other artists. Um, And by shifting to law practice, I could, you know, do consultations with people and meet with multiple people any given week and provide advice and create contracts and do all these different things where like, I could be helping people in lots of different small ways. Um, and, uh, you know, and also charge like a fee for it rather than right, right. crossing my fingers and hoping that, you know, the commission happens, come through. Right. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was right at the basically end of 2017, beginning of 2018, that I shifted away from booking and management and concert promotion completely um, and just focus on the law practice for a while. Um, and, uh, and I also didn't, you know, as much as I love music, I didn't pigeonhole myself to just music. I worked in any area that touches on copyright and contracts. So I was working with um, creators kind of across the spectrum. So uh, a couple specific questions um, to, to what you do, I think, that maybe relates to, to indie artists. First off, in terms of copywriting, um, when 
and and what? I mean, I know if you're a band and you get your masters back, start the copyright process, even though it's a pain and the website makes no sense to me. But um, I also have songs uh, that I write for music libraries, right, that I might just stick in a music library and it's royalty free and I get uh, $40 every time someone buys it. Or um, I, you know, I might sell a track to... Uh, to someone to use in a commercial or things, things of that nature. Does all that stuff need to get copywritten if it's not being commercially released by like by me as an artist? Um, well, the first thing that people should know is that you have a copyright the moment the work comes into existence. So if you're talking about a song, a recording, a photograph, a painting, a poem, as soon as you have uh, taken that work and put it down in some kind of uh, what we call in the copyright law, tangible medium of expression. Yeah. Once it is fixed in that medium of expression, you have a copyright. So if you're writing a poem, the moment you put the final word on the paper or the final punctuation that poem is fixed in a tangible medium of expression, right? It could be handwritten on a piece of paper. It could be typed in a Word document. doesn't really matter, right? As long as it's capable of someone else seeing it and being able to copy it from what they see, that's sort of the essence of when the copyright protection comes into being, right? So um, you don't have to go to the U.S. Copyright Office in order to get a copyright. You actually have that copyright immediately from just being the creator of that work. Right. Going to the U.S. Copyright Office and registering the copyright is a whole separate process um, that is intended to sort of put your work in a public database where people can see that you claim those rights. Um, but then it also transfers additional benefits to you. So um, if you find that someone is ripping off your work and you have a registered copyright, then it the registration certificate is actually required in order for you to file a lawsuit. So you need to be able to show that you've taken that step of registering the copyright with the US Copyright Office. Um, and then if you are actually embroiled in a lawsuit, the existence of that copyright registration may make you eligible for attorney's fees so that the other side has to actually reimburse you for whatever you spend on your attorney, um, as well as this thing called statutory damages, where you can basically ask the court to issue an award of damages without you having to prove the specific numbers, right? So if someone infringes your work and they make thousands and thousands of dollars off of it, if you want to get actual damages, you have to actually prove what they earned from the infringement. But with statutory damages, you don't have to do that at all. Okay. So so that all leads to the question of timing. Um, If you register your copyright within the first three months after the work is published, you are automatically eligible for attorney's fees and statutory damages if you end up in court years down the road. And when you say three months, after being published, do you mean uh, released to the public or date of creation? Released to the public. 
available okay. for sale or purchase or license or things like that. So it's still so it's important, even though I've got a copyright on the song I wrote yesterday because I created the work of art, it's still important uh, to go through the steps. Mm -hmm. And and to be clear, you can register the copyright while the work is still unpublished. So you so you can if you've written a song and you want to just go ahead and register the copyright before releasing it, you can absolutely do that. The copyright office will ask you whether the work is published or unpublished. It's just a simple yes or no um, question on the form, but there's no restriction on, you know, when you're allowed to submit the registration, as long as you have the work and you have the information on who the authors are and who the owners are, you can, you can register it prior to publication. You can register it within that three month window after publication and get the access to attorney's fees and statutory damages. Or if you haven't gotten around to it yet, you can register a work five, 10, 15 years later. You know, it's yeah. obviously not ideal to do that, but. You just might not be eligible for the attorney's fees and things like that. Right. And to be clear, you know, this gets into the, the details of litigation a little bit, but even if you don't have that automatic uh, eligibility for attorney's fees, you can still request them from the court. If you're in a lawsuit and you're at the point where you're, dealing with the damages aspect of the case, you can explain to the judge, you know, hey, this was a long, arduous process to get to this point. Um, we never should have had to file this lawsuit in the first place. You can kind of make these arguments to the, to the judge and request that, um, you know, an award of attorney's fees is made, but you have to sort of be persuasive on that. Yeah. Um, but if you have that automatic eligibility, you don't even really need to do that. And all of that seems like really abstract because most people will not end up in a lawsuit for one. And even if they do, they won't necessarily get all the way to the point of, uh, you know, a, a finding on liability and trying to figure out what the damages are. That's something that happens, you know, two, three years into a lawsuit toward the end of the process. Yeah. Um, but Knowing that you have that access, that automatic eligibility for statutory damages and attorney's fees, you can kind of use that as leverage if you ever need to send a cease and desist letter, right? So if someone is ripping off your music, you go to them and you say, we registered it, you know, the day after we released it, therefore we're eligible for attorney's fees and statutory damages. We know that you're infringing. We know that we're going to be able to win in court. So let's just resolve this now. It just makes your position a lot stronger on the front end that allows mm. you to kind of curb um, infringements if they come up. That's interesting. And and interesting too that that there is some sort of a copyright right away uh, mm -hmm. just, just by creating the art. Um, now what about uh, trade names and trademarks and things like that? How important is that for um, a band to register things like that or even even their logo i mean what's what's the process there um well it's a similar concept to copyright trademark for one is also a form of intellectual property um it is a different form of intellectual property from copyright so um you know that's something that i often need to clarify for people is that they're not interchangeable 
Mm. Um, and what trademark protects is your ability to use the name or logo or a slogan as a brand identifier in the marketplace. So it allows you to sort of carve out this unique little space and say, when people hear this name or see this logo, they immediately think of my band or they immediately think of my company, right? Right. Uh, whereas copyright protects the work itself. It protects the creative expression embodied in that work. So they're, they're a little bit different in that regard. Um, but bands do often have trademarks over their band names and their logos. Um, and the, the area where trademark is similar to copyright is in the fact that you start to develop those rights just by using the trademark. So, so there's no specific requirement that you have to go and register the trademark before you're allowed to use it or anything like that. You actually right. start using it in the marketplace, start promoting your shows, selling music, using that band name, using that logo in commerce. And that's where your, your trademark rights start to attach is just by virtue of you using it in commerce. Um, yeah. As for... Uh, why that legal protection is important is also kind of similar to copyright, which is that you don't know whether someone else might come along at some point and try to rip you off, right? They start a band with a very similar name or, you know, that type of thing is maybe not as common in the music world, though there is a fairly famous example that happened a couple of years ago we can talk about if we have time. Um yeah. But a lot of times it's it's in sort of the business world outside of music, right? It's a company is selling candles under whatever name and there's another company selling candles, but also other home fragrances under a name that sounds very similar, right? And mm -hmm. so in that kind of situation, there's a risk that the customers will get confused as to which company these products are coming from. Right. And so the essence of trademark law is to keep that separation so that, for one, companies don't have to deal with all of the complications that come from their customers being confused because, you know, then they have another company out there that's sort of riding on their coattails. You know, if they've been, let's say company A has been around for 50 years and another company comes along today that basically says, well, let's use a really similar name because people already recognize this existing name. Right. Um, you're, you're directly losing business to someone who didn't sort of earn that market status on their own. Um, mm -hmm. But then it also helps consumers too, right? So if you go into the grocery store and you know that a certain product on the shelf is coming from a particular company and you know that it's going to be a certain quality and whatnot, then it helps you make that decision when you're trying to buy the things that you want to buy. Um, if there were no trademark and everything looked exactly the same, you know, let's say you had 12 different manufacturers of, you know, soft drink products who were all using sort of like the Coca-Cola logo and color scheme, but you didn't know what you were getting when you picked a bottle off the shelf um, it would, it would be very confusing for people. Right. And so trademark kind of helps, um, 
it helps in sort of the competition aspect of our economy, right? It allows people to kind of create that space where they say, you know, when I see Kleenex, I think tissues, right? When right. I see Xerox, I think photocopying machines, sure. right? And so those are those are kind of the, the essential purposes that trademark law serves. Um, so in the music context, um, you know, again, bands already have trademark rights simply by using a band name. If right. you're promoting shows and selling music and all that kind of stuff, then you're already using that name in commerce. Um, but then if you want to take that additional step of registering the trademark, you go to the US Patent and Trademark Office and you basically submit evidence of your use of the trademark in commerce. You submit you know, a sworn statement as to the date that you first started using it in commerce. And then it goes into this government database that's publicly accessible. Anyone can search federally registered trademarks at the US Patent and Trademark Office's website and see that you know Andy claims trademark rights over this particular band name, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so just like with copyright infringement cases, it helps position you for uh, stronger arguments if you come across an infringer. So if someone starts a band or a music related company with a very similar name, and you've already been using it, you can then go to them and say, hey, we have you know priority over this trademark. You need to pick a different name, basically. Right. Gotcha. Because gotcha. in that way, you know, when you're browsing around on Spotify or another streaming platform and you're searching for a name, you're actually finding the music that you want to find. And I know that there's other issues with Spotify, like combining similar artists' names onto one page. And that's yeah. not technically a trademark issue. That's kind of their own like internal database issue. But um, better example maybe is like a live show. Like let's say you see a poster for a show coming through your town and it's a band name that you recognize, but like one letter is different, right? But you don't notice that. So you go and buy a ticket and you think you're going to see this band that you really like. And it turns out it's some like knockoff, like tribute act to that band that you really like instead. You know, there's like, not to yeah. say that tribute bands are doing anything wrong. And a lot of times you'll notice tribute bands intentionally choose a very different name from that of the artists they are paying tribute to, right? You don't want to create that confusion because the owner of the original trademark will come along and try to shut that down, you know, especially right. if they start to see some kind of detrimental effect come from that. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that with tribute bands. You could have a logo that's, you know, the Pink Floyd logo, but, you know, change a couple of the letters or something, right? If it's a tribute band, I don't know. And that might be. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say uh, exactly where the line is in terms of what's infringement and what's safe. Um, yeah. But there's also a practical component to it, which is that if, if it's not really on the trademark owner's radar and it's not really causing any significant, you know, harm to their business activities, they might not do anything about it anyway. So right. Um, right. you kind of have to look at it on a case by case basis. But uh, the point is that um, as a band, you can absolutely 
have that trademark protection. And as you get bigger as a band, I think that trademark protection gets more and more valuable, um, especially as you know your fan base gets larger because then your name recognition is that much stronger. Um, and you know things like selling merchandise and running Patreon pages and other things like that are all directly tied to your fan base's recognition of, you know, this band name equates to this particular music, you know? Right. And if you have confusingly similar band names out there, then your, um, you know, existing fans and audience aren't really as sure where to find your stuff and, and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I had a couple more questions for you. Unless, do you have a, a hard cutoff at noon? No, I, I should have a couple minutes. One of my partners is is going to call me about a case, but I, th- I think we have some flexibility on that. So it should be all right. But, well, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, if you have to jump off, just, uh, just cut me off. But um, I wanted to ask about the biggest artist mistakes legally that you see being made, especially by smaller bands. Maybe they're a local band that's been around and then and then something happens and they kind of shoot to that next level, whether it's they get a song placed in a big movie or show or they end up touring with a bigger act and they kind of messed something up legally along the way or, or just didn't know, uh, like most right. of us. Uh, I mean, what are some big mistakes you see there? Um, the first two that come to mind, uh, I wouldn't necessarily call them mistakes because a lot of artists that I've worked with didn't necessarily even know what they really needed to do until, you know, afterwards. And they come to me and they say, well, how do I, you know, do this right and whatnot. Um, For the artists that do know what to do and they choose not to, or they just ignore a certain step in the process, uh, maybe that is a little bit more of a mistake. Um, But the, the very first thing that comes to mind is, uh recording sessions especially if there's co-writing of songs involved without contracts biggest thing and the the reason for that is that under the copyright law there are a number of default rules that basically say that if you collaborate with another person to create you know one finished work at the end of that process Um, you will be considered co-authors of the work and as a result, co-owners of the underlying copyright. Mm. And that happens automatically. So if, if you're, uh, like in your case, you're, you know, primarily a solo artist, but when you go into the studio, you hire session players and other sidemen to come in just on the record alone, um, all of those people, even though they're not technically in your band, are going to be considered co-authors of those recordings because they are making sounds that are heard on the record, right? right. So then they are co-owners of your copyright. So when the time comes to sign a record deal or get a sync licensing opportunity, you have all these other people who technically need to be paid an equal proportional share of whatever money comes in from that. But if you use a contract to lay out either the splits or uh, have a clause in there that transfers the copyright ownership from the session player to 
you know, the musician who hired them, um, then you can actually either consolidate that copyright ownership into just one person so that as you go out and get record deals and sync licenses, you can confidently tell the people that you're working with, no, there are no other rights owners. There won't be any complications from this. You only have to deal with me and, you know, we'll be able to make this seamless. Um, but the other thing you can do is, you know, the default is for everyone to get an equal slice, but you can yeah. use a contract to modify those numbers. So let's say you are feeling like you want, you know, your lead guitarist or your bass player to actually own a piece of the copyright. Like you're not opposed to that idea, but you don't necessarily want to split up the money equally. You can use right. a contract to say, bassist gets 5%, lead guitarist gets 5%, drummer gets 5%, um, and so on, right? right. So, uh, and no offense to all my drummer friends out there. I love you. <laughs> yeah, sure. I was just trying to make a little bit of a joke. <laughs> they're just, they're just, they're, they're not, they're just hitting, uh, you know. Well, I actually have a client right drums. now who's dealing with a, with a licensing situation where the party on the other side is basically reminding us that from a compositional standpoint, drums are not uh, considered to be part of the composition in the same way that like a chord progression or a melody is. Wow. Uh, which is just kind of a weird thing about copyright law. And there's a long ethical and political sort of discussion. I'm sure we could get into right. as to the, the origins of that, but um, in any case, I digress from that um, point is you can use a contract to establish very clearly what the copyright situation is for a particular recording or for a particular song. Yeah. And that becomes really important um, sort of downstream in the music industry, because then once you have a record deal that you're trying to that you're trying to sign or a sync licensing opportunity, the parties you're dealing with on the other side are going to want some assurances that your rights are free and clear and that there aren't right. going to be five other people who come out of the woodwork a year from now demanding a piece of the royalties. So they, you know, when, when you're getting ready to kind of continue growing your career and building things down the road, you don't want record labels to walk away from you because they say, oh, this guy's situation is really messy and complicated, right? You want to be able right. to just go to them and say, I've got my stuff figured out. Here's the paperwork. I can confidently say that you're not going to have, you know, people suing you for past due royalties, I've got it all taken care of, right? Um, so that's probably one of the one of the biggest things, and it's honestly one of the most common requests that I get from clients too. Is hey, I'm going to the recording session. I need, you know, what what do I need for contracts? What how do I protect my copyrights here? And is this something that could be as simple for for my friends that don't play non pitched percussion instruments? Um, is this something as simple as could I bring in like a simple work for hire that I wrote up? And it says something like, I, Max Haas, write your name here, acknowledge that I played bass on Andy's song, Red Stripe Sweater, and he paid me $100 for it, and I don't own it, sign here. Is it, I mean, can you do, is it that simple, or do you need to really get something written up, individualized for the situation? Um, you can absolutely use, like, a template, like a blank template, 
and just, you know, fill in the name and how much that person was paid and for what particular song. Uh, and that's actually sort of the most common uh, thing that I provide to clients who ask about this kind of stuff is, hey, you know, I, I can give you a template and you can create however many copies of that template you need. Or if you want to, you know, spend more money and you don't feel like doing the work, um, I can, you know, create customized things. So the short answer to your question is yes. Um, I will say that the specific language that needs to go in there uh, has to say particular things. So, um, right. you know, it's definitely helpful to talk to an attorney to at least get that, what that correct language is, because uh, courts are very particular about the wording of contracts when it comes to transfers of copyright ownership. Um, and the reason courts are particular about that is because the statute, the copyright statute says that all transfers of ownership of copyrights need to be made in writing. And so the writing needs to be something that is not vague, is very direct and clear as to what is happening in terms of that transfer of rights. Um, but bottom line is, yeah, you can absolutely use a template with, you know, fill in the blanks and have a hundred copies printed off. So anytime you go to the studio, that's just kind of a standard part of the process. Um, now, okay. one thing I should also highlight is that in the music world, there are two types of copyrights that musicians need to keep straight. So to take it back a step, copyright is a form of property, right? So you have your work of art, let's say just to take it out of the music context for a second, you have like a painter who paints an original on a canvas, that physical object has its own property rights as a physical object. There is also an underlying intangible form of property attached to that, which is the copyright. Right. So the painter can sell the original without actually selling the rights to the image itself. Right. 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 Um, and so this is not directly applicable to music these days, especially with everything being digital, but let's say it's 1972 and you just came out of the studio and you have your physical master tapes from that recording session, but you also have the underlying copyright to those tapes. So you might deliver physical possession of the tapes to a mastering engineer or eventually to your record label to get turned into a record. Um, but that giving physical possession of that does not automatically transfer that ownership of the rights. You still have to use a contract to transfer the rights to that recording. So mm -hmm. I say all that to highlight that you have a copyright for the recording, but you also have a separate copyright for the musical composition. Okay. So the words, the melody, the arrangement, the harmony, all of that stuff goes into the composition. Whereas the sound recording, it's the sounds that you hear. So in a lot of cases in the recorded music context, you'll have a songwriter who may or may not be the recording artist, right? And then when you take that song and go into the studio, you then have X number of recording artists who are part of creating that recording. As soon as the song is written, lead sheet is written out or lyrics are written down, or if, you know, 
you're really on top of it and you write out a whole score, whatever form the composition itself takes, it does not need to be a recorded piece of music. Hmm. The copyright for that composition comes into existence. Just like I was saying earlier, once it's fixed in that tangible medium of expression, you have the copyright to that musical composition, right? Wow. Um, when, When you go into the studio, as soon as you're done recording, you then have a copyright in that sound recording. Yeah. So at that point, you now have two separate copyrights that you have to deal with. So on the songwriting composition side, it might just be you, right? And then you go into the studio and you hire a band and you then have five or six people who have made sounds on that recording. Because they're two separate pieces of property, you have to deal with the ownership of each of those two pieces of property separately as well. And so if like you, for example, you have one or two co-writers on the composition, then you want to have some kind of agreement that deals with how the ownership and the, and the percentage of royalties and other things are dealt with on the composition side. And then for the recording side, you can use those work for hire agreements, session musician agreements and so on to deal with the ownership issues on the recording side. And part of the reason that's so important is because those two separate copyrights have created the basis for the two major aspects of the recorded music industry, right? So there is a whole publishing industry and there are publishing companies and all they deal with are musical compositions. They don't typically deal with recordings at all. And then you have your record labels and distributors who for the most part only deal with recordings, right? They don't really touch on publishing issues, though that is changing. Um, There's definitely a trend toward people kind of doing everything under one roof these days. Um, But the the channels of commerce for recordings and for publishing uh, commercial opportunities are kind of separate from each other. And they're less separate than they used to be. But for most of the 20th century, those were sort of the two major pillars of the music industry. Yeah. And there's wow. completely separate revenue streams that keep come from each type of copyright. Wow. So you actually have, yeah. Okay. Wow. This is, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this a few times and, uh, <laughs> and pick up all this info. Well, Hey, I, I super appreciate your time. If you wouldn't mind, uh, stay on the line with me for just a second, but, uh, in front of our audience, I just want to say thank you so much, um, for your time and, and for chatting with me. Of course. And I did want to mention that I, I do teach this stuff occasionally in workshops. Um, and I have two workshops coming up. I don't know when exactly this episode is going to air, but I do have two workshops coming up in the, uh, last week of February. Um, and I can share more details about that once, uh, once those details are available. Um, but I also am happy to, you know, talk through this stuff and educate artists one-on-one, uh, in a consultation, things like that. I mean, big part of my, uh, practice has always been, even since the time I was still in law school is teaching this stuff to artists. It's not just about doing legal services for them, but also like really helping make sure that artists know how this stuff works because it's really vital um, to be able to have, you know, intelligent conversations about this stuff and, and, you know, to actually engage commercially with your own music. If you have an understanding of 
the basic vocabulary and kind of how the industry works. So I'm yeah. always happy to to share this info with whoever wants to learn more. Oh, I, I appreciate that so much. And on behalf of all artists, we, we appreciate that. And I'll make sure that there's uh, links in the show notes to how people can contact you and stuff as well. Sounds great. All right. Thank you, Max, for taking the time. And that's way cool that he does the educational stuff too. So uh, check the show notes and there's info on how you can get a hold of him and um, take advantage of, of the resource that he, the resources that he provides for artists. Um, and if you're not a musician listening in, I hope you found it um, interesting as well. So that's all for this week. I'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.